Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Titus chapter 2. I was, I told you this was going to be a five-week study through Titus. It's now going to be seven weeks. Um, I was originally going to preach Titus 2, 1 through 10 as one sermon, but as I was studying it this week, I'm like, golly, there's about three sermons in this passage. Like, like it's, it's, it's one that if you were to do it all at once, it would kind of feel like when you're at a buffet and you get way too much food on your plate, and we'd all walk out of here bloated and, and, and not feeling very good. Um, So I broke it up into three sermons, so we're going to um, work through Titus 2, 1 through 10 a little slower. Um, This week, we're going to see how when the gospel is rightly preached, it has implications for the congregation. Um, Next week, we'll we'll focus on one theme in Titus 2. It's that um, the, the older people in the church are to train up and mentor the younger people. And then thirdly, the third week, we will come to... Uh, verses nine and ten, where 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 Paul talks, or yeah, Paul talks about um, bond servants, and we're just going to talk about why does the Bible so often seem to condone slavery? Um, we're we're going to deal with that. We're going to answer that question. Um, you remember we're studying the blueprint of a healthy church in Titus. Last week we talked about the leaders of the church, um, pastors, shepherds over the flock. This week we begin to talk about the congregation, the lay people. Um, Healthy churches, we said, have faithful shepherds over their flock. Tonight, we'll see healthy churches also have congregations filled with gospel-minded people. Um, And we'll see that here in chapter 2. So I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Um, Paul tells Titus, verse 1, teach sound doctrine. As we work through Titus, anytime you see sound doctrine, he's always talking about the, the gospel, 
the, the gospel, the good news that the kingdom of God has come to earth in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that all who believe in him can be part of that kingdom both now on this earth and in eternal life one day. That's the gospel. Anytime he talks about sound doctrine, that's what he's talking about, the, the core message of Christianity. Sound doctrine, if he preaches it, will transform his church. It, it will be what his church is about. The, the, the church culture will be formed by what it, by what it is taught. It, it will learn. It will be formed by that diet of what it takes in. You want to know what a pastor preaches about at a church? Listen to what the congregation talks about in relation to their faith. But because preaching drives the church. The, the pulpit is, is like that is like that platform on a boat where the captain stands and turns the wheel. That, that, that will drive the church. So if a church talks all about politics, the pastor's probably just preaching about politics. If the, if the only language that, that a church has for their faith is corny cliches like, I'm too blessed to be stressed and God helps those who help themselves, that's probably what the pastor's preaching. If the church finds a way to connect everything in the newspaper with some crazy description of the end times, uh, that's probably what the pastor preaches about. Our church got an email this week. We have a um, contact page on our website, and um, the, the emails come straight to me that people send there. And you, usually they're junk mail. Usually I just delete them, but, but occasionally we'll get one like this, and I keep it to laugh at um, because it was this long email of a bunch of visions that this person had back in 2020 about the coronavirus vaccine and about how um, you needed to be aware now not to take it because if you take it, nanobots are going to be in your brain and you're going to be part human and part robot and God will no longer see you as his creation made in his image. You know, tribulation won't separate us from the love of God. Uh, distress won't, famine won't, nakedness won't, danger won't, sword won't, but nanobots, yeah, you're, God's done with you, sorry. Um, so, so it was a bunch of visions written out like it's, like it's from God, and I just read it and laughed, and I sent it to some of my friends and said, look, look at this. Um, whoever that person is, whatever church they're at, their, their pastor's probably preaching that. That's probably his sermons. Shepherds feed the sheep through preaching. They're going to reflect their diet. The same that if, that if you eat really healthy, you're going to be in shape. If you eat garbage all the time, you're going to be really out of shape. It, the same thing. If, if you get the gospel preached to you, you, your faith will be healthy. If you get a bunch of baloney preached to you, you your, your faith will be unhealthy. We want the gospel to constantly be preached not tacked on at the end of a sermon just to get people saved, though we want people to be saved. The gospel's the central aspect of Christian life. It, it flows through everything we do in the Christian life. It's something like when I get up in the morning, I get um, my coffee mug, and I use sugar cubes. It's just easier than pouring sugar. I get one little sugar cube, I drop it in the cup, I pour the coffee in, and I mix it throughout. And then I take a drink, and it's sweet. It's sweet. It's not just sweet where that sugar cube was in the cup. It has gone all throughout the cup, filled the entire drink. That's how it is. The gospel is preached in a church, and it goes throughout the entire church and fills everything that is done. People begin to apply the gospel to every circumstance in their life. Every ministry in the church is formed by the gospel. Paul shows how this works out in the church for all of chapter 2 here, for, for these eight verses that we read. Um, he, he specifically applies it to each group of people in the church. 
older men, older women, younger women, younger men. He's going to specifically address each one of them. I'll let you decide which one of those groups you're in, old or young. Um, That's up to you. But he's going to take the gospel and he's going to apply it to each of those groups. And it's quite interesting as we look at it how similar the struggles of men and women back then were compared to now. Quite similar. So let's look at each one of them. We're going to look at those four. That's, that's going to be how we work through this. Older men. He tells them to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. That's verse 2. I should have said that before. Um, he, he's applying the gospel, the good news of Jesus, straight to older men. He's going to do it to the other three groups as well. Um, what, what, do, what are older men prone to? Each of these groups that we're going to look at, there's something they're prone to, and the gospel speaks to that. What are older men prone to? Not all older, not all older men, it's just the stereotype, that the generality of older men, they're prone to grumpiness, being cynical, and kind of retiring from doing their part. I'm not saying anything about the older men in here. I'm just saying that's the stereotype. That's, that's the generality of what happens with older men. Grumpy, being cynical, and retiring from, from doing their part. As, as I speak to each of these groups, um, I already said that. I'm dealing generally with, with what happens. Um, older men have been there. They've been there. They, um, they, they, they've been worn out by life. They um, know how much life is a letdown at times. They, um, they've lived long enough to, that, that they see a world that is much different than the one they grew up in. So the tendency is to, to assume it's all going to pot. It's all, it's all about to get flushed down the toilet. Um, I, I was in um, Books a Million down in Valdosta a, a few weeks ago, um, and, and I, I got my books. I heard this old man in there, like, griping everywhere he was at. Like, I kept every bookshelf I would go to, he's, like, on the other aisle, like, just griping and um, saying all kinds of stuff. And I go up and I check out, I buy my book, and I walk to the door, and this guy, this old guy, is standing there in front of the door, and I can't get out the door because he's there in front of it, and he's reading a sign on it, and he's like, it was a sign that said, please wear a mask inside Books a Million, and he said, you can't make people wear a mask in here. You ever heard of the First Amendment? Oh, yeah, they threw it out. Just walks out the store, and I'm just standing here like, dude, I just want to go to my car. I just want to go to my car. But, but that's the stereotype uh, of the older man. That's why, God, that's why the gospel speaks specifically to that. Because the older men are old, they often have the mindset also that they've done their time, and so they're not going to serve in the church. They'll let somebody else do it. The temptation for older men is to always be grumpy and tell kids to get off their lawn. That's the temptation. That's not necessarily what every older man deals with, but it's the temptation. So how does Paul address that with the gospel? Well, he deals with these character qualities. He lays out the character that an older man in the church, that an older man in the church should have. Number one, he should be sober-minded, always typically dealing with alcohol, but could deal with any other um, thing, pleasure of life. But in Crete, um, where Paul is writing to Titus, Titus is the pastor in Crete, um, that there seems to have been this thing where heavy drinking was, was seen as virtuous. It was something that people did. And Paul's going to give the same charge to older women. Um, be sober-minded. Don't be addicted to much wine. 
or slaves too much wine is what he says. Perhaps the temptation in Crete for men, older men, was to drink, to cope with the hurts and letdowns of life, to to deal with that. And then he says, be dignified and self-controlled. Dignified, another word there, your, your translation might say it, respectable. Be respectable. Older men in the church formed by the gospel, they're not prudes and they're not Pharisees, but they, but they represent upright Christian character, that they live out Christian character. They are respected by the younger men. The younger men look at them and say, man, I want to be like that guy when I get older. I, I want to be like that man. That guy in books a million doesn't fit in this category because I was looking at him and thinking, God, please don't be like that when I'm old. Please don't. These men are respected by the younger in the church. They, want, they look up to them. And finally, be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older men, they've worked hard. Their body hurts from years of labor, but they still have their eyes set on the future. God is going, they know God is going to continue to do great things in the world. He's not going to give up on the world. The gospel guarantees it. The world is not going to pot. The world is being rescued. The gospel tells us that Christ will build his church. He promised that. The gospel will spread to the ends of the earth. He promised that. And then Christ will come and usher in the new creation. He will bring about eternal hope. Old men lead the way in, in giving that hope to the church. So they have every reason to rejoice and to love. They say, I will do that. I will serve in my church until I die. Older men shouldn't be the ones griping in church. They should be the first ones to jump in and encourage and serve. They should say, I will work to raise up godly men in my church to take my place when I'm gone. I will persevere even though my bones are wasting away. That's older men. Now, older women, verse 3. Be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And they're going to train up younger women. That's the thing we're going to look at next week, the older generation training up the younger generation. So, so just put that to the side at the moment. We'll get back to that next week. But, but look at the older women. We, we looked at their character. They're to not be slanderers. They're to be reverent. They're to, to teach what is good. So if, old, if older men are prone to grumpiness and cynicism, what are older women prone to? Not just older women, this is a problem universally, but especially older, men, older women, what are they known for? Gossip. Going to the hair salon every week and getting up to date on all the town gossip. And Paul confronts that with the gospel. What's he say? Do not be slanderers, but teach what is good. Well, first he says, be, be reverent, be reverent. Um, similar to the behavior of older men, be, be sober-minded, be dignified, be reverent. It's the same word that would be used in the Bible of something like temple fitting. Like, basically, older women should live with the respect like they are in a sacred place at all times. Like, like that's what he's calling them to. Be, be like you are um, in a temple at all times. But he says, don't be slanderers. Don't be slanderers. Slander, the Greek word for slander actually comes from the Greek word for devil. Devil. 
John 8, 44, Jesus says, speaking to the Pharisees, you were of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. To lie, to not tell the truth, to spread falsehood is exactly what the devil does. It's exactly what the devil does. What are we talking about, though, when, when we discuss gossip? What, what, what's, the, what's the issue there? Because I think the problem is we don't often know what that is. We assume some things are that and, and, and other things not. Um, gossip is not just talking about somebody that's not in the room. That, that's not what gossip is. Um, that happens a lot when I'm visiting people. They'll be telling me about some stuff going on in somebody else's life. And they'll think they're doing something wrong by sharing with me, yeah, they went on vacation last week or, or just something trivial like that. And, um, and they'll, they'll preface it by saying, I don't want to gossip, but this is what's going on in their life. They're, you know, on vacation. They, they had some mold in their house, you know, what, whatever. Um, I think we can define gossip as two things biblically. First, gossip is sharing intimate information about someone else that is not yours to share with people who do not need to know. Sharing intimate information about someone else that is not yours to share with people who do not need to know. Sometimes people share a personal prayer request with me. Um, like they come to me and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Could you pray for me? And I'll say, absolutely. But they don't want anyone else knowing. But sometimes it's awkward because I know they don't want the church knowing, but then somebody else in the church knows about it. And so they announce during prayer time. And I'm standing here like... Why did you say that? <laughs> Why did you say that? They don't want people knowing. Um, so theoretically, let's just say Jack and Jill are a married couple. They're, they're in my office. They're, they're struggling with their marriage. And so I'm talking with them about that. And um, they're, they're really struggling. That's Tuesday afternoon. Wednesday night, I come into prayer meeting and say, hey, y'all need to pray for Jack and Jill. They're on the verge of divorce. That's gossip. That, that's, that's, that's what's going on here. That's one way that gossip is, is apparent. Secondly, first remember, sharing intimate information about someone else that is not yours to share with people who do not need to know. And secondly, gossip is sharing information not related to you that you don't even know is true. That's what he calls it slander. That, that's what it is. It's slander. So it, this would be something like, hey, um... My cousin's next door neighbor overheard at the nail salon that Debbie is pregnant out of wedlock. Sorry, Debbie, I just picked a random name. I didn't, yeah, right, sorry, I forgot there was a Debbie in the room. Um, let's replace it with, with uh, Trisha. Trisha, my cousin's next door neighbor overheard at the nail salon that Trisha is pregnant out of wedlock. And so then that person goes and shares to 20 other people that Trish is pregnant out of wedlock. And pretty soon it's spread around the whole town. And it's not even true. It's not even true. But now everyone thinks Trish is sleeping around. That's gossip. So how does Paul address that? Well, he addresses it with the gospel. That they are to teach what is good. They're not to walk around sharing all the slander. They're to teach what is good. Older women must replace gossip with the gospel. Replace gossip with the gospel. They must be about promoting truth instead of slander. 
you see they're told to, tr- to teach younger women. We're going to deal with that again next week. Older women are to confront their desire to share false information with, the, with a burning to share the good news, to share the good news, to talk everywhere about the goodness of God, the truth of God, going everywhere procre- proclaiming what God has done in Christ, passing that along to the younger women in the church. Be about that instead of spreading gossip. Younger women, verses 4 and 5, um, it's kind of indirect in what Paul says. Um, older women are supposed to teach younger women to be like this. So how are you, what are younger women supposed to be like? Well, they're supposed to love their husbands and children. They're supposed to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Of the four in this passage, this is probably the most countercultural one to the day that we live in. What are younger women most tempted with, um, typically? I mean, not in every younger woman's life, but, but typically, culturally, what are younger women told to, to be? Independent. Free yourself from a domestic life. Free yourself from, from, you know, having to take care of your kids and be a housewife. Like, free yourself from that. It's part of the curse upon the world. Genesis 3.16, when the woman sends, what does God tell her? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In the curse, um, each member of the curse, the serpent, the woman, and the man, all get a curse related to what they were called to do. The serpent is made to crawl in the dust, and he's going to get crushed by Jesus one day. The man is going to have pain and work. He's going to work but it's going to be really difficult. The woman is going to have strife at home. She's supposed to be the man's She's going to have a really hard time carrying it out. The curse of the woman is to be tempted to go against the family order and, and the calling to be the husband's helper, especially with the modern feminist movement. Women are told they don't have to settle for that old life of being a homemaker and a mother. We're going to talk about each of those, so, so don't think I'm necessarily putting all women in that category. Um, we're going to talk about each of those. So what are the qualities? First of all, they're to love their husbands and children. Notice, love their husbands is first. Their their husbands is first. This comes first before children. The temptation is to put children before the husband, um, and rightfully so. Like, if they're young, they're literally dependent on you to survive. They're, They're dependent on you to survive. But in the process of raising children... They shouldn't let their marriage die. They shouldn't put their marriage on the back burner while they raise kids because what will happen is one day those kids are going to grow up and leave the home, and what's going to happen if that happens? Well, if their marriage hasn't been, had anything done with it in 18 years, they're not going to remember how to be married at that point, and it's, it's going to be like living with a stranger. Not to mention the fact that the marriage that your children see at home will reflect the marriage they have one day. It will. If they see that mom and dad never talk, but just exist like roommates that come and go as they please, you can bet that's what their marriage will look like one day. If they have parents who continually to romantically pursue each other and love each other well, who go on dates even 10 years into marriage, who spend time alone communicating, who continue to kiss and hug and be together, sons are going to grow up and, and treat their wives like that. And daughters are going to grow up and not settle for a husband who doesn't do that. They're going to know what marriage is supposed to look like by what they see in the home. 
To love your kids properly, you must love your spouse well. That's why he, puts, that's why he says, love your husband first. Then he says, be self-controlled and pure. Younger women are only to have eyes for their only for their husband. They don't watch the movie and see some hunk actor and say right in front of their husband, ooh, he's sexy. She's only to say that kind of thing to her husband, even if he's got a gut and doesn't have that six-pack that Brad Pitt has. (laughs) Young women are pure and committed to their marriage vow and to their husband. Um, Next, working at home. Working at home, this is one of the ones that we're going to have some controversy about. Um, Does this mean women can't have a career or a job? No. Some people might say it does. I I don't think it uh, puts that there completely. It carries the idea of Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. Um, Hold your spot in Titus, just flip back there real quick, because it's actually a pretty long passage. Proverbs 31. I hear um, a lot of women say they strive to be Proverbs 31 women. That's awesome. Let's see what kind of woman that is. Proverbs 31, we'll start in verse 10. We're going to read literally through the end of the chapter. It's 21 verses. Um, This is a description of what the Proverbs 31 woman is. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, does not harm, all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchants. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her means. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hand and let her works praise her in the gates." Work hard at home, that's exactly what this passage is all about. This certainly, this passage, if you read it, there's plenty of description of of her going out and working outside the home. She's selling stuff, she's going off and, and, you know, doing financial ventures, buying fields and, and all of those various things, but she's also deeply committed to working in her home. So does it mean that women can't work outside the home? No, because Proverbs 31 says they can but, but she is deeply committed to her husband, her kids, and her home. That is where God has called her if that is where she's 
at in life. If he has given her a husband and given her a children and given her a home, she's called to be committed to them. Next, another controversial one. Let's just hit them all. Um, verse 5, the end of verse 5. Submissive to their own husbands. Oh, boy. Let's dive into that one. Well, actually, let, let me just give you a little flyover, and then we'll, we'll hit it again in a few weeks. Um, one of the most controversial commands in the Bible in our day. Wives, submit to your husbands. What does it mean? Um, I'm preaching a series on marriage in a few weeks on Sunday morning once we finish John. And actually, one Sunday, I'm going to preach on that passage where it says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Christ loves the church. Um, I'm going to have my wife up here with me. I'm going to preach the whole sermon, but I'm going to ask her a few questions throughout. Hey, what's this look like in daily life? So that people hear it from another woman and not me. Um, let me just give you a, a, a very... 10-second description of what we're going to say that day. Wives are to submit to their husbands as the head of the home, but the husband's to lead his home by laying down his life for his wife. The, the, the husband's got the bigger job there. He's got to literally put himself to death for her, and she submits to that. So that's just a plug there. We'll get to that in a few weeks. All of this flows from the gospel. All of it flows from the gospel. You see where it says um, in verse, um, uh, where are we at? Verse 5, the end of verse 5. Do all this, why? That the word of God may not be reviled. So, so, do, do everything we just talked about. Young women are to do it so that the word of God may not be reviled. All of this flows from the gospel. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. The church submits to Christ because Christ died for the church. He loves her. She submits to the, to the church because, she submits to Christ because he died for her, because he loves her. He doesn't want harm. He doesn't boss her around. He lays down his life for her. The, the young woman's life, as well as the other three, is meant to reflect the gospel. Women, as well as all the others, don't find their value in what they do. That's what the feminist movement says. Find your value in your career, not in your husband and kids or your home. You know, make your mark on the world. Find your value there. No, the, the young woman as well as the other three, we find our value in Christ's love for us. Not, not in what we do, not in who we are, in the fact that Christ loved us. That's where we find our value. The fact that Christ loved us. Final group. And... Younger men, verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. He gave a list of things to the other three groups. The younger men, he just gives one thing, be self-controlled. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Self-controlled is actually something he commands to all the other three groups as well. Uh, older men, verse 2, are commanded to be self-controlled. Um, older women, verse 3, are commanded to not be slaves to much wine and to teach younger women to be self-controlled. So ideally, they've learned it. Um, and then younger men are commanded to be self-controlled. It's the only thing given to younger men. Why? Well, what do younger men struggle with the most? Lack of control. Well, they, they can't keep their hands on the wheel. Let's just deal with two areas that, that younger men deal with lack of control in. The first is lust. Um, pornography is a thriving enterprise in our culture. Billions of dollars every single year spent on pornography. Uh, the average age that a child sees pornography for the first time is 11. 
That's the average. That means there's plenty younger than 11 and plenty older than 11. But, but the average age a child sees pornography for the first time is 11. By age 14, 94% of children have seen pornography at some point, willingly or unwillingly. If a child has a smartphone, they have unlimited access to pornography, and it's about as easy as clicking two buttons. Parents, grandparents, I hope that horrifies you, and I hope that leads you to fight for the souls of your kids, because that industry wants to gobble them up. I hope you can show them that there's more beauty to be found in the gospel than in pornography, there's so much more beauty. In a sexualized culture like that, like, like, like Crete and like ours, men need self-control. Young men need self-control. They have to train themselves by the power of the gospel to say no. Say no. So the first is lust. The second is ambition. Young men want to fix stuff. They want to make stuff happen. They have no patience. If they aren't seeing results, they'll quit and they'll go try something else. They can see the future. They've got a vision for the future of what they want their life to look like. Um, it's the opposite of the older men. The, the older men think the world's going to pot. Um, the younger men have endless opportunities before them. They can see all things on the horizon. But the problem is, most of them, um, they know where they want to be in 20 years, but they want to get there in two years. They want to get there in two years. It's going to take 20 years to get them there, but they want to have two years and be there. They have to have the self-control to stick it out and to wait for those 20 years. And then Paul speaks specifically to Titus, he, who, who is a young man. Verses 7 and 8, he, 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 he focuses on Titus as, as one young man. Show yourself in all respects to me, a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Um, he, he, he gives a little more command to, to Titus himself, the younger man. He speaks to him and says, be a model of good works. That flows from the gospel. All of this flows from the gospel. The gospel applied to all of this. Um, Ephesians 2, um, for, for by grace we've been saved, not of works, so that no one can boast. It's a gift from God. But he's preparing us to be his workmanship, to do good works created in Christ Jesus. He's, good works flow from the gospel. We're to be a model of good works because we understand the gospel. The gospel produces that good works, and look what, what some of those are. Integrity, dignity, and sound speech. He tells Titus, let the gospel transform you. Do not let the former life be your joy. Let the gospel be your joy. He's, he's preaching to a church, and he's saying, form your life around the gospel. Every group of people, form your life around the gospel, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, the gospel applies to you in every, in every way. The circumstances you're in, it applies to you. It's got something to say to you. We don't just make the gospel about getting people saved. We want people to get saved, but we often present the gospel as just the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A through Z of Christianity. It's all of it. We don't have like the gospel here at the beginning and then we talk about all these other things. No, the gospel goes from beginning to end. That's the point of Christianity, the good news of Jesus. We don't grow tired of the gospel. 
It applies to all of our situations. The gospel is what forms every part of our life. Everything we do, every ministry of our church centered around the gospel. Everything we do in our Christian life, we, we, we do it because of the gospel. And Paul specifically uses four, four examples of how that plays itself out in a church in these four groups. We're going to come back next week. We're going to read this passage again, and we're going to focus specifically on that on that passage where it says young, the, the older generation, train up the younger generation. And so let's pray and we'll come back next week for that. Father, I thank you for the beauty of the gospel. Lord, may we never grow tired of it. May we never get bored with it. It forms everything we do. May, may every worship service that we have be centered on the gospel. May every prayer meeting we have and every deacon's meeting and every pot and every um, children's event and every activity, Christmas, Easter, uh, all the things that we do, may it proclaim the gospel to those there or why are we doing it? Oh, Lord, may the gospel shape each one of us. Wherever we're at in life, help us to know how to take the gospel and apply it to us. And may we be formed by it. May we be like that sugar cube in coffee that sweetens the entire cup. And may that be our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.